Welcome to an attempt at civil discourse. My name is Eden Cohen, and I'm here with my co-host and good friend, Andrew Salisbury. In this series of podcasts, we take on difficult and profound topics that apply to us as individuals and societies. We have different takes on many of these subjects. But our goal is to conduct a thoughtful and open-minded discussion to inspire better knowledge and better dialogue. In today's cast, we will look into cognitive biases, provide some examples, examine our relationship with them, and exchange some ideas on how we can overcome this common weakness that every person possesses. Andrew, take it away. Eden, what a great time to talk about cognitive biases. We've agreed that we're not going to deal with the uh, political and uh, social turmoil that currently uh, envelops our country. But the idea of a cognitive bias is so appropriate right now. And we're hearing it in all kinds of different media as well as in actual conversations with people. Cognitive bias is a systematic error in thinking. Let me do a quote from a gentleman named Gonzalez, 2017. Heuristics are the shortcuts that humans use to reduce tax complexity in judgment and choice. Biases are the results gap between normative behavior and the heuristic determined behavior. So a heuristic is a little quickie that we use to make a judgment call. So is that a leopard? Very important that I make a quick decision on whether or not that is a leopard, because if it is, it could jump on me. The bias that results is I make that quick judgment, but it's not a leopard. It turns out in the jungle, that mistake, if you will, that gap between the quick result and the actual result is better to mistake the leopard than to make a mistake that it isn't a leopard and then have a leopard jump on you. So that's a very effective thing to do in the jungle, but it is a terrible thing to do if there are no leopards. If all of the time we're defaulting to danger, that tends to have a huge impact. So that is a heuristic that yields a poor result given the environment. And maybe I should add that a heuristic that works all the time that's actually an algorithm. So if you have a recipe that always works, that's more than a heuristic. Test. Sure, as long as that's true, that it always works given the conditions. And that's what the problem is, is that we are using these shortcuts because thinking is very energetically expensive. It uses a lot of brain power to be thinking about things. So if we could just default, then we um, really get a good result from that. I find this to be so important right now because we see lots of people making value judgments and, and decisions on things without any thinking and using tribal markers, team markers, instead of actual facts to decide how things are. What are some examples? Uh, let me give you a couple, and then I'd love for you to add some more onto them. I think there are easily dozens of pretty common cognitive biases. So here are some of my favorites. One is the status quo bias. So this is essentially a preference for the present state of affairs. Not because the present is better, but simply because that's what we have and that's what we know. This goes beyond just inertia, because 
if you have a status quo bias, you actively seek to maintain the status quo, even if the conditions have become adverse to the situation. And you can look out for phrases like, we've always. When somebody says, oh, but we've always, that tends to hint at the status quo bias. So it's this reluctance to seriously consider any changes, any improvements. And sometimes, just to be clear, this bias can prevent hasty and risky changes. So this is by no means just a negative. It could be positive in some situations, but at the same time, it does inhibit innovation and uh, growth. The second bias that has so many different variations and flavors to it, but you can lump them to get together as a uh, mental accounting bias. So the idea with mental accounting biases is that a person assigns a subjective value to something that has an objective value, and that could be money, in a way that violates basic economic principles. So one example is a person decides to drive to a gas station that sells gas for a few cents less But to do so, they need to drive an extra 10 minutes. And they would ignore the fact that they are wasting more fuel just to get there and more of their time. And as we know, time is money to get there only to save a few cents at the pump. So that's one shape of this. Another form of this account, mental accounting bias is something that I call the gift card bias. Let's say you're offered an opportunity to get a discount on a gift card. Let's say you can buy a $100 Apple gift card for only $90. That sounds like a good discount, like a good bargain. So you buy that gift card for a 10% discount. Now you're at the Apple store and you have that gift card with you, but this gift card is no longer cash. And you feel that it's burning a hole through your pocket In a way, it feels like free money because you already have that credit. It can only be used for Apple and spending it is not going to reduce your cash balance or increase your credit card bill since you've already paid for it. You are tempted to spend it unwisely on something that maybe you would never would have bought for cash, even if it was sold at a discount. I, I want to uh, make a, a general comment here, which is, I sent you a list that had 180 cognitive biases on it, and I've read uh, two dozen articles now on it. There aren't any good uh, standards in what a bias is or how it gets uh, named and all that. So um, a lot of these things have multiple names and different overlapping areas, so it's hard to pin this down. It, the rule of thumb that I always use is that you should have gotten a result and you got a different result so it's not wrong to say oh i bought this for 9.99 and that feels like ten dollars it's the problem where you bought something that you wouldn't have bought otherwise yeah if you if the outcome is different as a result of the bias then potentially you have a problem i always was amazed at free donuts and so you'll have a meeting and they put out you know a tray of goodies and people would not have gone and you know eaten three donuts at the donut shop if they had to pay for them but because they're free they polish those donuts <laughs> off like there's no cost to them because they didn't pay for them but we know that the calories and the sugar and the other effects of eating all that it's going to be there but somehow because they didn't 
pay the money up front. The rest of it is quote unquote free. So that's a different example of your mental uh, mental accounting bias. Mm-hmm. What other examples do you have, Andrew? Well, let me talk about one that's personal to me. Um, and when I read through these lists, you know, you're like, yeah, I've done that. Yes, I've done that. My concern is which ones are sort of standing waves where I always have that problem. Um, the one that was most resonant with me was the idea that attractive equals good. So you you trust someone who is good looking or you trust a product that is good looking uh, and therefore it is good. So, hey, wow, that car is just amazing because the shape of the outside metal has a little bit better style to it. It's suddenly worth twice as much. It's suddenly worth 10 times as much. You know, you, you look at a Ferrari that costs $200,000 and you're, wow, that thing is beautiful. They, they really are. They're works of art. But are you going to be able to drive it at 200 miles an hour? Are you going to be able to park it anywhere? But because it's attractive, it must be good. And I find that to be a general rule of interactions with people, interactions with companies, where we associate their attractiveness to good. And it turns out that there are some tremendously ugly people who are really good. And you need to separate yourself from that immediate reaction to try to say, well, is this really a good or a bad deal? Right. And I think uh, much of this, at least in the case of people, it has some evolutionary reasons behind that, finding, you know, the right mate that can bring to the world healthy offspring. So much of that is even encoded into our DNA in a way. Well, I think, and, you know, there's lots of behavioral, evolutionary behavioral logic that says, yeah, that makes sense. They're, they're symmetrical, you know, they're of the proper height and, and all that. There's no doubt that there's some of that going on, but I'm very unlikely to mate with that Ferrari, no matter how attractive it is. And this, you know, Apple phone that I'm holding in my hand, yes, it is amazingly sleek, but is it really worth a thousand dollars compared to the $200 phone that's last year's and it's just not quite as sexy if you will but they're they're conning us well so to counter this just for a little bit i think when you buy some of these status items it's much more about the function it's also a signaling device so by having this you're not only getting the benefit of a sleek phone which i agree with you is very marginal but you get the benefit of showing the world that you might be cut from a different cloth i agree the the signaling behavior is is very much a positive force you just need to decide is that worth what i'm paying for it and i think that's where the cognitive bias comes in that yes i want to be seen as the kind of person who holds this phone is anyone actually going to be able to tell you know or am i just handing over a thousand dollars to think I'm going to suddenly be right, cool. Right, and that goes to the whole art of marketing where marketers will try to put you in exactly that spot where you feel that this more expensive product justifies the premium because it will allow you to be something different, something better. And this goes to the idea that you're being conned, right? You've been convinced that something is true, but it is not necessarily true. 
and you see an awful lot of 45 year old guys go off and buy Corvettes or Ferraris because it's going to suddenly change their luck, their self image. And it doesn't really do it. What it does is separate them from a big chunk of money and it signals it's, it's sending a signal, but it's the wrong signal. So this type of attractiveness bias, I think is very common and it comes so naturally to us. And I'm going to set it aside for a little bit because later on I do want to talk about the halo effect, which I think is linked to this. But one cognitive bias that I personally struggle with is actually something to do with reciprocity. Uh, Robert Cialdini, uh, who is a famous psychology professor, explains this very nicely in his book about influence and persuasion. And in a nutshell, reciprocity is this pillar of human culture where we are wired to return favors, we're wired to pay our debts, and to generally treat with respect those who treat us well. Uh, one very strong form of reciprocity is that we feel indebted towards favors, even if we never wanted or asked for the favor. Uh, this is something that salespeople use all the time to make us feel obliged to go along with them. And I sometimes fall for this too, even when I fully realize what's going on. So, for instance, a while back I received a voucher for a free lesson free in inverted commas to a uh, fitness club and after the lesson the manager approached me very nicely we chatted for a while and I ended up unwillingly buying a package of extra lessons this wasn't because I was so excited about ever going back there but because I felt obligated to reciprocate I just didn't feel good about walking away without paying for the free service that I, I had uh, just received. Right, even though you knew that the whole idea was to get you to buy that Oh, that absolutely, absolutely. It, it, it also, and I don't know if this is a cognitive bias, but that also requires you to be rude. And I see you as not wanting to be rude. You know, the, and this nice manager wants me to buy this, and oh, they've, you know, they've offered me this nice clean class, and here I am enjoying it. Now I've got to I've got to interrupt the polite experience with a rejection, and that's hard to do. Yes, exactly. So the heuristic perhaps is to be nice to people who are nice to us, but sometimes it leads to pretty bad deals in terms of value for money. So let me ask you: some of these cognitive biases are clearly, you might say, more excusable than others. Do, do you agree that there are cognitive biases that are inexcusable and ones that you can sort of let slide, let go, because they're just so ingrained in who we are as people? I know we've gone back and forth on this a couple times in the in the preliminary about you know whether or not I dread seeing a cognitive bias and especially given the political environment, which again, we're not going to go through the details of, but to see the various um, fake information that's going back and forth, both sides um, of presentations of both real and imagined facts, that really bothers me. The, the cognitive bias part, I don't see it as so much as a um, personal problem as the fact that they won't even question it 
So this sort of goes to the meta skill part that we're going to talk about later. But the the I don't want to think about my thinking. I'm just going to go ahead and do this. That I I dread seeing the result. I dread interacting with those people. So in that case, yeah, I really it really bothers me sometimes that they won't open up their own thinking and look at it even a little bit. Um, let's take a different example that's less political. I have a number of friends who feel lucky or they're they're going to Vegas and they're going to win big because you know their their lucky number came up in some in some other fashion and i've personally been to las vegas a lot for business as well as passing through and i really enjoy going to the casino and and watching people perform the act of throwing their money away and i look at these big buildings filled with lucky people but somehow the buildings are getting paid for and it really bothers me that they they either don't understand statistics or they don't they can't calculate the odds but they just feel lucky now i don't it doesn't bother me if they say well i'm going to spend a hundred dollars and i'm just going to enjoy it and they actually only do spend a hundred dollars but the ignorance yes i get you <laughs> these people are oblivious to the fact that the odds are stacked against them and that the more time they spend on the casino floor the lower their chances are to make any profit. I'm sure somewhere out there, there's got to be a mathematical proof that after enough time in Vegas, your balance will always converge to zero, no matter where you started. So you touched on individuals who are not willing to think about their thinking, to ask why they behave the way they do, And this brings me to certain biases that are all too common and easy to spot. Uh, these are the less excusable biases in my book. So let me provide a couple of examples. One is the halo effect. This is when you see a positive effect in a person and you assume that it applies to all other traits or vice versa with negative uh, qualities. So if somebody, as an example, is a very successful athlete, we might give substantially more weight to their thoughts on, say, uh, politics, even though there is no obvious connection between these two spheres. Another example is confirmation bias. That's when we only consider scant evidence that seems to confirm what we want to believe. I was talking to a friend the other day and we were debating what the true extent of uh, inflation is these days. And he was arguing that it was higher than I did. And when I challenged him to present evidence, he pulled his phone in front of me, went to the search box and typed something like, home prices are rising fast. That was quite jarring. So that's a good back and forth on on biases and sort of how we see the the uh, dread and not dread of of it in others what what can we do given this world and given the ever-present cognitive biases how do we judge things can anything be trusted hmm So it's extremely difficult to make a good case about something without introducing any kind of bias. Even if you base your arguments on figures of authority, 
even if you present Dr. Fauci, okay, as your source of truth, that exposes you to an authority bias where we trust people simply because of who they are. So I don't think it's reasonable to be persuasive or to reach meaningful decisions without using some of these heuristics, which, as we know, can turn into cognitive biases. But the idea, like we said, is to be aware of these biases, to use them uh, sparingly as much as possible, and to maintain good awareness for how much they can possibly weaken our argument. So it's fine to introduce figures of authority to take the previous example if we realize that figures of authority might be wrong. And if you keep this in the back of your mind, I think you're actually very likely to be the least cognitively biased person in your social surrounding. I think that it's okay to accept input from an authority figure, from a friend, but it shouldn't be a single source. You want to look at multiple sources and you want to be able to compare and contrast them. So that I would call a, a cognitive skill that says, yeah, I heard this, but I also heard this. How do I balance those two things? And especially when I get results, look at the results I'm getting from the decisions I'm making. That's the biggest problem I see is that we're getting terrible results, but we go ahead and do the exact same thing over and over and over again, the definition of insanity. So I would say that you, yes, can trust Dr. Fauci, take his input in, but if later he comes and changes his mind, then you have to really question, okay, why? And did they offer a rationale for why their, why their opinion has changed? And does that make sense? How does that fit with my vision of the world? So you have to put a lot more effort into it. And that's, that's really what we started talking about. Is it's why we jump with the heuristics is it's so much easier to just trust the leader. Yeah, and I love the concept, uh, which I try to employ as much as possible, of looking for multiple sources, multiple opinions, not relying just on one news outlet, but rather a collection of diverse viewpoints. And also, and also the idea that can they, can they tell you how they got to that conclusion, right? If there's just an opinion and the, the justification is, well, trust me, or, you know, because I told you so, even as a kid, I had a hard time, you know, when my mom just said, because I told you so, I needed something that was behind that, that, that made sense, you know, and I would actually say math can be trusted, science that you understand, I think can be trusted. And I think that things that have stood the test of time, been really tested and have stood the test of time, I trust some of those. Um, so, you know, things that Ben Franklin said um, often are real pearls of wisdom. Those are those memes, those aphorisms that came out of Poor Richard's Almanac really have some quality behind them. And they're often unassociated with today's politics or a particular opinion. So, you know, a bird in the hand is worth two in the bush. That makes real sense to me. It's proven. It seems pretty solid. And I use it as if you Even will, though it's a heuristic. Well, it's a heuristic, but it's sort of an anti-heuristic where you're, you're using that then to get the 
to cudgel the opinion that goes the other way of, hey, let go of that bird so we can go chase these two birds in the in the bush. You're like, yeah, I don't know. You know, this this bird looks pretty good and he's in my hand pretty solid versus those theoretical birds you're trying to sell me. So you never really stroke me as a person that necessarily prefers the one bird in the hand, but I did see you on occasion demonstrating a certain cognitive bias. But before oh. I tell you about that, I'm hit, sure. Hit me. Uh, okay, okay, hit. I'll, I'll hit you. So I think sometimes, and maybe even in this podcast, I see you going down the path of a cognitive bias known as declinism. Declinism is when you remember the past is better than it was, or you expect the future to be worse than the present. So generally, if you graph the the welfare of society, say over time, it tends to decline. And in our one of our recent podcasts, I think it was the Capitalism 2.0, I think we had an exchange where you hearkened back to the 70s and lamented how the average American today is not as well off as they were 50 years ago. I presented a, a number of counterexamples because I truly believe that the vast majority of Americans are significantly better off today. In my view, this is an example of this nostalgic bias, or as I like to call it, the Make America Great Again bias. Hmm. I wonder where you got that slogan from. <laughs> I, I see what you're saying, and I remember the particular conversation that we had. Um, I, of course, want to re-argue that whole uh, discussion with you, which is a different bias, I'm sure. Um, I, I will disagree with that, although... When I talk about what I would like in terms of a political party is something that's future oriented and where we're making progress. So I think some of it's that I want progress that I'm not seeing. Um, I'm very clear that if I had a time machine, I would not go into the past and stay there. So I don't want to go to the Roman Empire and live there. In general, you know, if you get to chick choose your parents, then yeah, I would jump into the past and say, oh, that looks really good. But I understand that what we have now is better than we had in the past. So I understand what you're saying. I will also say that, you know, I've seen a lot of uh, cycles come and go. Um, and so, yeah, sometimes I do definitely see, okay, we've, we've saw this before. It's going to happen again. Stop pretending like it's all new news. So Okay, I'll, I will accept your, your input, and I will attempt to uh, be less uh, declining and more uh, uh, inclining. Would that be the opposite bias? I think things are getting better. Well, I like that bias because, like we said, maybe the best way to, to see the truth or to get to the truth is to get those opposing views. And I'll absolutely give it to you that even when you present these declinist viewpoints, they are substantiated. So you don't just throw it into the air. You justify it. You present facts. So I'm not saying this is wrong necessarily. I'm just saying that you have this tendency to view the past in a more positive light. Uh, I'm trying to remember who's who does the statistics. Daniel Pearl, but that's not the right name. But he, there's, a, there's a book where he's doing a lot of analysis that things are getting better, that we're in a less crime-ridden... Steve Pinker? Pinker, yes, thank you. Um, let me let me make a let me make a counter volley here of what I see as your bias. <laughs> I, 
I okay. really had a hard time with this because you are immensely rational and you are well informed and you really do think about things. And one of the reasons why I was so glad to have you become my friend and colleague was that you really do challenge me that I can't just bullshit my way through things or you will pick it apart. And I need to be careful uh, in how and what I say. And you defeated me a number of times in, in debates and speeches uh, and forced me to go back and really re, uh, resharpen my edge. So that's great. The thing I do see is that you are often... And maybe it's a, a golden rule um, kind of thing. I know it's the, I, the one I wrote down is the content, Kantian fairness tendency. But you think that other people are like you in that they're rational beings. And I don't see that. I see you as a shining example of rational thought standing not necessarily alone, but in a pretty in a pretty small crowd of irrational actors and that you several times have said, oh, well, they'll make this rational decision and they don't. And so that bias then affects how you go forward because you think that other people are going to act like you. So that is that fair? I'm, am I explaining that correctly? It is fair. I think uh, there is much merit to it, although I am growing out of it. Sadly, I'm growing out of it because, like you say, it doesn't always work, and sometimes uh, it leads to disappointment. No, that's because you're in declinism now. You've, oh. you've gotten old enough that you're now declining. But don't worry, you can sit on the beach next to me in our in our golden in our golden years and discuss how irrational. Uh, they are. When I talked about declinism, it's uh, your perspective on the world. It's not how you function. <laughs> <laughs> well, just give it time. I'm sure. I'm sure I'll get. At some to point, it. yeah, you'll catch up with it on a personal basis. I suppose everybody will. Let's. So that was fun, uh, and I will take your input and you know try to try to make you wrong in the future because that's always fun. What do we do? When you do detect this bias in yourself or others, what's a good technique that you use that, to try to deal with that, right? To try to help them or to, to prevent the upcoming disaster that you see, what's your technique? So one thing I found, and that should come as no surprise, is that pointing out biases in other people doesn't tend to work. So you certainly <laughs> yep. don't want to stop someone and tell them, They've just exhibited a fundamental attribution error. Don't try this at home, folks. And the thing is, people are usually talking to get a, uh, a certain point across, and it's uh, surprisingly easy to poke holes in almost every argument, but just because you can doesn't mean that you should. So instead, what I do with other people is try to find commonalities and see what I and they can agree on. And if I believe they're missing something or that their reasoning is deeply flawed, I will lock in on that main point in their argument and see if we can find a way around that. So I will not explicitly point out a bias, but maybe I'll suggest that they've made a generalization by pointing out a counterexample. Or maybe I'll suggest that they jump to a conclusion without considering some evidence. I try to surround myself with people who are going to be good judge, 
good judges for the soundness of what I have to say, like you, Andrew. And often enough, these people are upfront and they will point out flaws in my thinking. So having meaningful conversations with thinking people, I find that this is a great way to identify and work on your own biases, just like you presented my own bias of assuming rationality around me. I agree with what you're saying. I haven't found it particularly effective to point out their biases, um, even if they understand what those biases are and the label means something to them. Uh, maybe if we had somebody who's really well trained in debate or thinking skills, that might be useful. I find the questioning much more useful than bringing up other facts. So if you ask questions, you're much more likely to get them to come with you than you are to try to shout, if you will, counterfacts, because that just never works. Um, and that the more questions you ask, the more likely they are to go away and think about it and try to come back later with some better vision of what they were, what they were talking about. For myself, I often will sit down and, and make a spreadsheet, make a list, um, because that forces you to go through and enumerate what are the possibles. Rarely do you add it up and say, okay, you know, I should buy the Volvo. It's not that kind of a process. Usually just going through and trying to enumerate it makes it clear what the, what the good choice is, what the correct choice is. In fact, I often have already decided what to do and I'm just trying to justify, you know, I really want that new yeah, car. Conf confirmation bias, yep, yep. Well, I'm forcing it to, you know, to confirm what I want and that process forces me to go, yeah, I really just want that one because it looks cool or I'll, I'll go ahead and put in there the, the signaling idea. You know, <laughs> It's hard to admit, but it's valuable to admit it. That if you can go ahead and get it down on paper and say, yeah, I'm doing that because well, that may very well justify the, uh, the, the $1,000 price tag. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> $1,000 price tag. Um, I'm going to quote a couple of things here. I got this out of a website called Positive Psychology, which I found quite useful uh, of many, many sources of information on cognitive bias, uh, much of which is uh, academic and extremely difficult to penetrate. These guys did a good job. There's a um, specific thing called uh, positivepsychology.com, cognitive biases. And they talked about what do we do that's a meta skill? How do we learn to address these cognitive biases? Reflecting on those past decisions. So actually looking back and saying, well, why did I make that decision? Allows you to make better decisions in the future. The idea that you mentioned, which is including external viewpoints. Can I get other inputs from people whose opinions I value, challenging your own viewpoint, which goes back to my spreadsheet idea where I'm trying to enumerate it, not just feel that I have the right answer. Um, and then the hardest one of all, which is do not make decisions under pressure. And I think if we start to build those tools up, those meta skills, if you will, we could really not eliminate the cognitive biases, but at least get them herded together uh, in a corral so that you can be making better decisions in the future, which is really all you can ask for, right? Is that as you go through, get better results is the, is the goal. Of and you have to admit that there is something comical about using heuristics to save us from the 
downfall of using other heuristics. There you go. Well, in my declining years, I will uh, continue to uh, try to improve and limit my cognitive biases. I've, as always, enjoyed our discussion, and I, you know, I think we did some uh, give and take there, and came to a pretty good, uh, pretty good place at the end. And Andrew, if this is what you call a decline, I can only wonder what an incline would be. Thank you for another enlightening exchange. And dear listeners, please join us next time for more truly excellent civilized discourse.